Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Carl Eric Fisher. Carl, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And I'm really, I've, I've been really looking to, forward to this conversation since even not, not even finishing the book, just starting the first couple pages. So I'm going to read your, uh, the beginning of your bio and then hopefully get to your book. So Carl Eric Fisher, MD, is an addiction psych- psychiatrist, bioethics scholar, and author. He's an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University, where he studies and teaches law, ethics, and policy relating to psychiatry and neuroscience, especially issues related to substance abuse disorders and other addictive behaviors. Now, this is the part what brought me to you. He's the author of the nonfiction book, The Urge, Our History of Addiction, an intellectual and cultural history of addiction, interwoven with his own experiences as an addiction psychiatrist at Columbia and as someone in recovery himself. And... This is one of the New Yorkers, New Yorkers' best books of 2022, and we're not even done yet. And so I want to talk about your book, which means your history of addiction, as well as your history of addiction, and then connect it with sustainability, which I believe the lens of addiction clarifies. And I'm sure that everyone starts with how, I hope I don't sound like a cliche, but your book sounds incredibly courageous to share and so open and to show these vulnerabilities. Because it starts off with you in the deep throes of um, dependence on drugs and alcohol and getting a degree in these things and in treating these things and working with these things. I don't even know where to begin because I've been thinking about it, where to start. Uh, I mean, I almost can't believe someone could write this book and yet it's totally believable. It, it juxtaposes... Uh, Personal disaster with triumph, shame with achievement, the personal with the historical, depravity with generosity, depths of human experiences, the summits of human experiences. It's very personal, and yet it's also systemic. I guess I'll ask with how could did the process of starting to write the book, did you know that you were going to... I feel like you've laid yourself bare, and most people would have trouble sharing as much as you did. Did you know that what you were getting into when you started writing it? Did you write it for that reason? It didn't feel monumental at the moment. It felt just like the necessary book that I wanted to read, but that didn't exist. And this is a cliche about writing in general that I, I think applied very nicely to me, that you should write the book that you want for yourself. And in my case, I, I needed it. Um, in the sense that I had some curiosities and some confusions about addiction. Uh, we could talk more about my personal history, but you know, the upshot was that I had a tremendous problem with stimulants, including cocaine and Adderall, but also alcohol when I was during my medical training. And then once I was relatively settled into uh, recovery and I felt safe enough that I wasn't at some sort of imminent risk of relapse, I started looking more deeply into understandings of addiction, basically to understand what had happened to me using some of the skills that I had acquired from neuroscience research, but also looking at bioethics and the definitions and understandings of mental disorders. And um, there are great, great uh, works across many different fields from theology to psychology to hard neuroscience. But I wanted something more synthetic that kind of put it together across different disciplines in a way that helped me to understand where I was coming from. And I didn't, I didn't find it. And so I just started and 
especially as time went on, I found that it was necessary for me to bring in more of myself in part to disclose my own biases, but also to keep myself honest and keep on returning to what mattered the most, just like to answer these questions like what what the hell just happened to me or uh, what do we really understand about addiction or what does it say about who I am and what to expect for the future. Uh, and then you know, I just wrote and wrote and wrote. And then <laughs> honestly, like once I got to the end, I, I had over a million words. Most people might know that you're supposed to have a lot less, like a hundred thousand is <laughs> yeah. probably a good number. And so I started cutting and started the revision process of looking for where I could go deeper or where I needed to, uh, display more of myself, but it's not, not some sort of performance. It's for the purpose of the text. It's for the purpose of these questions that I have, because I like to think of myself primarily as a scholar. That's where I got all my training. And, um, if I kept the question front and center, like what, what really happened to me or what is addiction anyway, or how does addiction function at the societal and cultural level? How come entire societies and cultures appear to get into these addictive epidemics over and over again? And don't seem to be able to extricate themselves, even when they profess a desire to stop, uh, whether it's taxes on tobacco during the, the early British empires or whether it has to do with the opium trade in the 19th century, whether it has to do with fossil fuels. Uh, these things certainly seem similar, but they look different. Uh, how do we make sense of that? And that just necessitated a certain amount of just me telling the truth about what I had gone through and what was on my mind. Um, it wasn't that torturous. It was, uh, it was actually kind of fun. It's uh, the revising part. You, I mean, you've written books, so you know, like the revising part, that's killing your darlings. That's the part that yeah. sucks. Oh yes. I'm working on my next book. I'm like, I just wrote this one part that's like very meaningful and people are like, this is great. But my, my editor is like, it's great stuff. It doesn't belong in this book, but it's great. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, I got to take it out. Anyway. So, um, when you began, did you know about how far back addiction went? Because I think of addiction much more now. I feel like there's more addiction in, in the world today than there was a long time ago. But you go back. I don't know how back the Vedas go. That must be three, 4,000 years. with the, And that's with gambling, I think. The particular verse of the Rig Veda that I looked at, I think, can conservatively be dated to at least 1,000 BC. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, in, that's not my own judgment. That's in consultation with some Sanskrit scholars. Um, so at least 1000, but it could be more, uh, I, when I started off, I had the notion that surely there's something to the history of addiction, but there was, and there, there's an explicit historical argument that addiction is purely a function of modern society. Like we didn't have addiction before we had intercontinental commerce and before we had advanced, uh, capitalism that, um, put people into contact with highly rewarding and unfamiliar substances very quickly or had these misaligned um, sort of profit motives that had uh, powerful corporations even going back hundreds of years, exerting force on people to sort of conceal the true harms of substances and so forth and so on. And it is the case that the modern era saw an inflection point with an intensification of addiction. That's certainly true. Uh, but it was a surprise for me to find examples of addiction in ancient Greece, not least of all Alexander the Great, uh, in ancient Chinese poetry, and then the, the example you bring up in the South Asian Indian uh, Rig Veda, where there's this beautiful poem called The Gambler's Lament that describes very, very clearly, just I think, 
to my mind, uh, indisputably, a very beautiful description of a uh, gambling addiction of somebody who describes wanting to stop dicing and uh, yet cannot. And we see in the course of this brief but uh, powerful poem, somebody his uh, loved ones leave them. He loses his wife. He loses everything he holds dear. And, and yet the dice are calling him back. Uh, and so, so what that meant for me was that there's something about the phenomenon of addiction that is uh, woven in very deeply with human psychology, with the human experience. It is not just a modern accident. It is not purely a function of capitalism, even if, uh, you know, mercantilism and everything that came after uh, seems to have intensified it in some important way. Uh, <clears throat> addiction also points toward something deep and enduring about, um, to my mind, uh, vulnerabilities that we all have, that there's there's addiction in all of us. It might be more intense in certain instantiations, but it really is there among all of us. Yeah, I'm going to read a quote. I know, I'm sure you know this quote from your book. <laughs> Addiction is profoundly ordinary, a way of being with the pleasures and pains of life, and just one manifestation of the central human task of working with suffering. If addiction is part of humanity, then oh, I should have asked you to read this. Yeah, <laughs> that's no, fine. <laughs> then it is not a problem to solve. We will not end addiction. I mean, reading that is like, you're right. I mean, it's hard not to, it's hard to, uh, we, we will not end addiction, but we must find ways of working with it. Ways that are sometimes gentle and sometimes vigorous, but never warlike because it is futile to wage a war on our own nature. And certainly the mechanisms of addiction, that we would get reward from doing things that would bring us things um, back pre, uh, pre-agriculture, that the mechanisms would be there would make sense. Now, the mercantilism and the capitalism, it feels like people have realized, oh, we can profit from this. Mm-hmm. And it almost seems like CEOs and politicians have become addicted to, and maybe I'm overusing the word here, but to the power that they get from addicting others. And that, because I want to say we should stop them from doing things like, I mean, we don't advertise, we, we, I don't, I think no one disagrees with, we don't advertise cigarettes to children. I mean, we, I guess we, they try to, they, they go as close as they can. Mm-hmm. But no one, I don't think there's anyone who says that's nanny state. We shouldn't do that. But it feels like there's a lot of other things that, that fly, under the radar or right over the radar? I mean, we advertise sugar cereals to kids in Saturday morning cartoons. And we advertise, I mean, McDonald's is everywhere. And we know how, everyone knows why. Mm. And we also advertise plastic toys in Saturday morning cartoons. Yeah. And, well, if you don't mind my jumping into sustainability, sure. is that there seems that there are many things that once didn't have adverse effects, that when provided through pollution, they do have adverse effects. So I think of things like um, flying, travel in general, that you can travel without polluting, but when you have jet fuel pollutes and it displaces people from their land and, and, and um, you know Tesla batteries, we just can't seem to stop ourselves from sending children into mines where they die. And these are adverse effects, but agriculture and, I mean, you can farm and you can hunt and gather without polluting, but we make factory farms and these things are, have some negative effects, clothing, social media. So I feel like CEOs and politicians are 
benefiting from this stuff and 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 selling it to us in a way that appeals to like oh I want to see the world I want to go and visit nature far away I want to I want to um, both live far enough away from family that I'm not bothered with them too much but have access to them when I want mm. and so we live flying distance away mm. and so I want to understand addiction partly to understand I mean when so when I read your words. Uh, we will not end addiction. I thought, well, oh man, what are we going to do about these things that like kill people? Mm. I mean, millions of people die a year from breathing polluted air and mm. legitimate scientific research implies that it could be billions mm. within our lifetimes. Some say it won't be, but there's a chance it could be. And if we can't end, addi can't end addiction, does that mean that's inevitable? Or are there things that we can do instead? And because I know my experience, I've certainly felt like my experience of living more sustainably has felt like kicking an addiction. I, I wasn't, oh, I haven't, I think you're the only person I know who's been tased. Yeah, okay. Uh, voluntarily almost. I mean, they kind of asked you if like, are you going to come, is it going to be easy or hard? I think they said, or mm. I forget exactly what. Yeah, are you going to come along nicely? And I said, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> and Because some part of me recognized. And then I think that's that's a key thing and you know, just a brief uh, interjection, and then I want to hear your yeah, please. Your thought. But that episode, we don't have to go into it too deeply. But it, when the police breached my door when I was at the height of my manic episode, they asked me if I would come along nicely. I said probably not, and that's because there was a, a war within myself that uh, I was divided against myself, and there was a part of me that was rational and in control, and that part of me also recognized that I was not fully in control, that there were other parts of me that were in this sort of unstable dynamism and I was at too much of a risk of slipping back and fighting these guys or uh, losing my insight or what what have you. And so I, I sort of reported on myself. And that's that's actually not that unusual in people with addiction. You know, it's a common, common practice that people will wake up the next morning and pour all their gin down the sink. It's a common, common practice that people will make other sorts of resolutions. One element of addiction, I don't, I don't try to pronounce on, you know, Dr. Fisher's perfect definition of addiction. I don't think that that is helpful. I think it's more harmful than illuminating. And one thing I try to do in the book is, is illustrate all of the different facets that have been, uh, carved into this, this beautiful phenomenon called addiction that writers have wrestled with for at least 500 years. So, but at least one major, major, major component of addiction is this mind divided against itself. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the reasons why in sustainability discourse, people feel that it's natural. And we see in the, the everyday language and the, the sort of folk psychology, people could say our society is addicted to oil or even at the individual level, people are addicted to uh, uh, paper coffee cups or people are addicted to, uh, pret-a-porter, uh, like disposable fashion, fast fashion, whatever they call it. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, because it, it, it at least shines a light on one of those sorts of divisions where people might recognize that this is not right for me, or maybe I shouldn't be doing it, but in the moment I feel sad or I feel tired, or maybe I'll just let myself do it this time. Like we, we, we have a sense of that sort of conflict internally. And that's not unique to substances. It's not unique to alcohol and cocaine. That's something that we can we can experience with all sorts of different activities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what you're talking about, there's a quote that I came across with Abraham Lincoln. Uh, he said, 
there's the most damaging thing you can do to yourself is to do something that you believe is wrong. And, you know, he didn't say to do something that is wrong or to do something that I believe is wrong. He said that you believe is wrong. And that internal conflict is, I think, the um, that really destroys us because we, mm-hmm. we will do anything to avoid facing that conflict and what it brings to us of feelings of guilt and shame and helplessness and hopelessness. Mm-hmm. And so you had the quote from Edgar Allan, Edgar Allan Poe that he said, the unfathomable, he described, I guess it's alcohol because that's what he died of, the unfathomable longing of the soul to vex itself, to offer violence to its own nature, to do wrong for wrong, for the wrong's sake. And that, so you said, we say we might be addicted to oil, but I think more accurately, it's we're addicted to the comfort and convenience that oil brings us. Mm-hmm. And the oil is like the is I mean if oil didn't pollute others or and ourselves, mm. I would have no problem with it. Mm. But it does. It hurts others. And and I think that once we know that we're har- harming others for our comfort and convenience, that kicks in to doing something that we believe is wrong. And then we get in the cycle of we need to be tased in order I mean, we, you know, we, we're not we don't trust ourselves enough for the next five minutes to say, well, you better taste me. Yeah. I mean, we will do anything to protect our way of living. And and now we have a whole world full of people who feel that way. I mean, we've, we've come into a world where we're like polluting a lot. We just write off as like not that bad. Mm-hmm. We, we, we blind ourselves just from seeing it. And maybe I'm on the other side of it because I also used to fly for the fun of it. And now I look back at that and wish I'd stopped earlier. And I see that this pattern that I, I, I noticed, and then I see that others have pointed out long before I ever noticed it, which is that the feeling you get from the addiction is actually you get less of that in your life. Gamblers who, they feel like they're winners, but they're losing. People take meth, feel like they have lots of energy, but overall in life, they have less. Uh, social media makes you feel like you're connected when you're isolated. And fossil fuel stuff, like people who fly a lot feel like they're also connected and getting in touch with nature while they're actually farther away from everything. And they feel like what where they are is no, is no good anymore. Mm-hmm. And they feel like nature is over there, but they don't appreciate the nature where they are. And in fact, they destroy the nature that they want to appreciate. Mm-hmm. Your addiction was something that were the – I think you were the main – recipient of the adverse consequences, although your family and friends and professional colleagues were too. But with pollution, it's way beyond that. Actually, you may benefit. It's, it's, it's to me, it feels like a cigarette where you smoke it and someone else dies of cancer, mm-hmm. but you get the pleasure of, I mean, smoking isn't pleasurable to me, but I guess for some people it is. Sure. It's like a cigarette where you get the benefit and the other people get the loss. Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky. I think this is part of the reason I was motivated to look deeply at what we call addiction because again we have this very natural everyday language of referring to some of these types of behaviors as addictive uh it seems natural for you to think of your flying your past flying in an addictive mold but then we also have received these cultural ideas about addiction as if they're caused by drugs not only they're caused by drugs, they're caused by only certain drugs. We have this weird division, which actually breaks down upon examination of um, 
some drugs are supposedly addictive. Some drugs are not addictive. And that pendulum has swung back and forth often in response to lobbying and intensive pressure from uh, the groups that I call uh, the um, addiction supply industries following another scholar. Mm -hmm. uh, that the, these, these are industries that exist to uh, produce and then to distribute substances that have some natural harms. Uh, and even in calling them addiction supply industries, I, I'm already making a mistake. I think it's a mistake I had to make, but it's a mistake by drawing a distinction between, say, uh, I don't know, um, an alcohol industry versus Hasbro or Lego, <laughs> sticking with the plastic toy thing. Uh, mm. The truth of the matter is, if you look very deeply at the notion of addiction in Western thought, uh, even just the very definition of the word itself, it, it goes back about 500 years to the time of Shakespeare where um, Protestant theologians who were very, very interested in sin took this, this word addiction from the Latin and then layered upon it even more complex and nuanced meanings about volition and will and willpower. And back then, they were talking about addiction as something that was not necessarily positive or negative. You could addict yourself to the right things. So a young man... Motive, and it's usually a man in these cases, unfortunately. A young man who's motivated to find God and to serve his community might addict himself to the right kind of study. He might addict himself to God. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the wrong type of pursuit might addict yourself to um, laziness or even to the devil if you're studying necromancy. So our, our initial sense of addiction that's been handed down to us culturally is much broader and much more capacious than... Um, the sort of like necessarily negative connotation it's acquired. And we probably don't have time in this podcast to go into it, but that's, that's a historical accident. That's a function of certain things happening with specific substances over the past 100, 200, 300 years. Uh, but I think the important thing to note about that now in terms of our contemporary understanding is uh, if we notice a pattern that seems to be addictive in the sense that uh, at the individual level or more broadly, people have trouble stopping we see continued use despite negative consequences. We see, again, we can see that at the social level, we can see resolutions like uh, climate summits that then uh, the world community has trouble living up to. We can see individuals making resolutions. Um, you know, I'll admit myself, uh, I, uh, I'm a Zen practitioner. I've been studying Zen Buddhism for 20 years. I've always had a very deep connection to especially the notion of um, non-harming through diet. And sometimes when it's convenient or I'm really hungry, I will slip on that. I had a hamburger yesterday. I didn't want to, but uh, I was tired. My partner was out of town and uh, I wanted it, you know. And um, uh, honestly, Josh, coming on your show, I feel like a little bit of guilt. I'm sure people have told you this sort of thing before. Like you've got your bio and you talk about how uh, you've become very rigorous and you've practiced this personal practice of um, being very attentive to your impact on the world. Uh, but I, I don't think I'm being self-serving by saying that all of these ancient writers, the theologians going back to Augustine and earlier, uh, what they were identifying was an intractable problem. It was intractable in this, and they called it sin back then. We could put it in more psychological terms, but I think if you strip the sort of moralistic connotations from it, sin works. It's a, it's the intractable universal problem that everybody has the experience of going against their best interests. Socrates identified this too, as you know from the book. Uh, everybody has the has the experience of saying to themselves, you know, things, all things considered, 
uh, it would be better if I didn't do this thing. And then they watch themselves clear eyed do the thing that they said they didn't want to do. And then they feel bad about it. I, I had a guest on my own podcast, Owen Flanagan, who's a, who's a former chair of philosophy at Duke and, um, also a person in addiction recovery. And he talks about healthy forms of shame that, uh, it's natural that we feel shame in some circumstances. We, we have the legacy of a lot of negative shame. Uh, some of it is religious, you know, not to knock religion, but there, I think there are unhealthy versions of religious shame we've inherited. Um, but there are also healthy forms of shame, you know, in, in a way like the zeitgeist, especially in pop psychology is a little skeptical of shame saying like, oh, you have to, you have to love yourself and you can't have shame. But, uh, the, the example that, um, Owen gives is, uh, if you've got two kids and one kid steals the other kid's candy, uh, the mom will lean down and say, you stole Tommy's M&Ms. You should be ashamed of yourself. And that doesn't mean you're an awful person and you should hate yourself. It just means, you know, like the appropriate moral response to the circumstance is shame. So where am I going with this? I think I'm just saying that um, it, it's natural that people would run up against problems and failures in a way some of these failures are inevitable to comport our behavior with even what we believe in our heart of hearts to be the most um, healthy and interconnected and loving ways of relating to our earth into each other. Uh, but I think we also have to bring self-compassion, not, not giving ourselves a pass, but give, bring ourselves some self-compassion to the notion that it's very, very difficult to change habits. It's very, very difficult to uh, change our behaviors. You're making me realize why I want to talk to people who have experiences like yours and have written books like yours because, and I appreciate your honesty of saying how you felt given the identity, my identity that you've seen because it forces me to think of differently about what message I want to send, especially in the book that I'm working on, on sustainability leadership. Because when you were talking about the Protestant approach to addiction, I mean, you said how it was, um, there'd be, you could be addicted to good things or bad things. But to me, what was hitting me most was like, they're very judgmental. It was like a big morality issue of something that didn't necessarily have to be moral. And by making it moral, one party becomes self-righteous and another party becomes guilty and, and, um, and how much am I conveying that? Whereas maybe a more, I'm, I'm thinking out passages in, in my, um, manuscript of where maybe I should start off with saying what you just said. We all struggle with this and whatever I put forward of my, you know, taking three years to fill up a load of garbage. I still buy packaged stuff and mm -hmm. despite myself, I see myself mm -hmm. doing it. Just what you said. Cause like when you said it, I kind of, I don't know if it came up in the audio, but I, I like laughed, not laughed a little bit, but you know, like that little, I laughed a, a bit because everyone must be thinking, yup, <laughs> like I do that and it isn't going to go away for some crazy reason. Mm -hmm. Not for some crazy reason, because we're human, because we were born this way and because, uh, it helped us get here because it helped us do difficult things in the past and like doing things that were difficult. And somehow we've changed the world to prey on that. That's going to sound judgmental too, I guess. But systems have developed that are very, um, what's the word, resilient and enduring and grow by increasing that effect or, or they grow based on that. Nonetheless, as human as it is, as normal as it is, 
as unending as it will almost certainly be, we still have to face that we do things that yeah. hurt other people on a huge scale. Yeah, there's a big theme in the book that I think probably applies to sustainability too. I'd be interested in your thoughts uh, of the the individual versus the social dimensions. And sometimes this is held up as some sort of false dichotomy where, uh, you know, for example, people talk about whether individual change versus social change should be prioritized or at what level do we have more power? I mean, I, to me, it's an uninteresting question because the, the bottom line is... Uh, you know, if, if someone's interested in working on homelessness, for example, you know, like if you, if what really lights you up and makes you happy and makes you feel connected is individual street outreach and do it, you know, <laughs> if what really seems curious and interesting to you and what lights you up and feels sustainable to you is to do policy stuff and argue about line items in a budget, then go do it by all means, you know, people should just do what lights them up within, within reason, as long as it's in line with their deepest goals and visions. But I, I, this like individual versus social dimension, I think, can get a little tricky when we think about ethics. Uh, you know, I'm really interested in ethics as a bioethicist and also a psychiatrist as a project of human flourishing. That's the way it was practiced when it was first, you could say, invented. You know, Aristotelian efforts and otherwise that people didn't go to psych, uh, people didn't go to philosophy because of some sort of academic game and they didn't do it because they had some sort of um you know fascination with complex ideas they did it as a way of making their lives better understanding their place in the world uh and working toward flourishing and uh, we're faced with impossible decisions ethically all the time and our participation in systems this comes up in religion too i mean so many different uh religious orders the one i'm most familiar with is the buddhist ones i'm not a buddhist teacher but just as a practitioner myself uh, i'll note that um you know just like many other religions there are a, a series of different moral precepts where they say a disciple of the buddha does not kill a disciple of the buddha does not lie a disciple of the buddha does not steal etc you know pretty similar to the 10 commandments uh the way that's treated in the lineage i've studied is uh, a set of hypotheses that someone has to go out and test and pay attention to in their daily lives, not as some sort of instruction manual. And then like a robot, you download it and then execute it perfectly. That's not, this is not possible. If that worked, then we wouldn't have all of the ethical problems that we have across every dimension of human life. Uh, people really need to practice with not only the difficulty of changing behavior, but I also think the fundamental impossibility of some of these problems. You know, even as somebody who's like, totally totally committed to veganism has to contend with the fact that even the, the most beautiful lovely form of organic farming is going to kill some insects probably kill some rodents you know there's going to be some uh carbon costs you know there, there's no such thing as uh exerting zero harm on the world around us same thing could be said about sex relations same thing could be said about lying and telling the truth uh so forth and so on so i you know i think that um Practicing ethically rather than getting some sort of series of rigid ethical instructions is a really important psychological message. That's something that really rang out to me in the history of addiction. And I think it's a, it's something we could do more of less, less, um, less dictating, less of the dictator within 
and more of the more of the practice, more of the dynam, dynamism and the flexibility and the growth over time. Can you say more about practicing ethics? Is it practicing ethics in the sense of like playing scales? Is it practicing ethics in the sense of of doing your best? Can you clarify what you mean by that? Sure. Yeah, I think the way I learned ethics this is not to knock my younger teachers, but the way I learned ethics, say in like regular suburban Sunday school, was here's a list of rules you do, go out and follow them. Mm-hmm. And what I've come to learn over time in myself, and what I've seen in the most up-to-date research on how humans work in clinical psychology and psychiatry, is that uh, people need to practice with their minds in the sense that they might hold a prior intention to do something. Say, for example, I, I have the intention to practice kind speech with my loved ones, and then you know I'm tired and I'm cranky and something happens and I snap at my son. That's normal and that's human. So the practice is getting off automatic pilot, noticing that when it happens, and then uh, putting a space between stimulus and response, and then going about it differently. And so I, I was thinking about practice in in a similar sense to what you're talking about with sustainability. Like you're saying, you still buy package stuff occasionally if something comes up or if it's unavoidable or it's it's a hard thing in the moment. Um, the 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 key to me is not to have a little scoreboard up in the corner saying like, oh, I'm 95% of perfect or I'm 97% of perfect today. It's to notice those moments of uh, discrepancy. Here's a discrepancy between my most deeply held values and how I'm acting in the world. Like, what's that about? What's going on with me right now? How do I need to better take care of myself? Uh, what does this reveal about my situation? Like, that that's the practice. And I think we, in order to do that, we need to do that in community. That's certainly something that's come up a lot in the history of addiction and recovery is uh, multiple times throughout history and uh, completely independently, these groups of mutual help recovery organizations have come together. Before there was Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, there was a totally um, analogous but independent group in the 1840s called the Washingtonians. And then there are examples from the United States um, uh, Native American communities, like the Seneca especially, that I spent a, a fair bit of time profiling um, there's a reason for that. I think we need to come together in groups uh, to work together and, and practice and be witnessed by each other and get support and guidance and hope. It's not it's not just some individualistic project of uh, figuring out what the right path is and then executing on it. If that's okay with you, I want to share with you a way that I've been describing this contrast between individual action and collective action. Mm. And tell me what it sounds to you because it, it – the practice part fit, hits a lot. So a lot of people say only governments and corporations can make a difference on the scale that we need. And I tend to think of, you know, the Civil Rights Acts, or Voting Rights Acts of the 60s couldn't have happened if people didn't walk instead of taking the bus almost a decade earlier in Birmingham. And that couldn't have happened if someone had not not gotten up from her seat. But even that couldn't have happened if there weren't a group supporting her and that group wouldn't have formed had there not been generations and centuries of people doing before that. And all these people before, the people walking in Montgomery, the people before Rosa Parks, that anyone could have said to any of them, what you do doesn't matter. And yet we're not going to get the Civil Rights Act without that. And the picture that I form is that collectively acting is like an orchestra playing. And all the musicians in the orchestra have to practice their scales First, you don't get an orchestra without everyone being able to play and playing 
and not just playing a little bit, but playing. I mean, if you want to, no one goes to Lincoln Center to see a bunch of musicians playing scales. Mm-hmm. You want to see them playing music, so they have to play scales enough to get to where the music is out is is a flourishing thing. And then I have to go to a picture of me as a child when I had to play violin. I didn't want to play violin, and there's me playing scales on the violin with tears streaming down my face because I have to, but I don't want to. And uh, so if we cajole and coerce and convince and seek compliance and use a lot of what is in environmentalism these days, like, oh, if you don't do it, it's bad. And that doesn't work. I mean, there may be some people that take to it naturally. There's certainly some people who played the violin and just loved it in a way that I didn't. And sometime later in my life, when I was playing sports, I would, you know, I was running sprints in the rain all by myself because I wanted to make nationals. And I wasn't crying. I, I loved it. It wasn't fun, but it was fun in a way. Mm. And so for better or for worse, I think if we want an orchestra to play, if we want governments and corporations to act, we have to play our scales first and we have to find the joy in it. So something different in nature, separate from sports or, or drama or singing or music, things where some people get it and some people don't and some people like it, some people don't. I think everybody has this connection to nature and my sporting method, what, what I do with, when I work with people is to, is to have that mindset shift to where they embrace, they find that joy and they find that. And like, they, I think that leads them to like playing the scales. Mm-hmm. But this view of, of we have to practice to get better. How does that sound to you? That view? Yeah, you mean practicing about um, sustainability and collective action? Like we, we can't just yell at corporations and governments until they make the changes we want? We have to, yeah, we have to... We have to, or even get to, we get to make these changes. Yeah, I, the, honestly, the thought that comes to mind is a children's book. My son has this beautiful book called, I think it's called Because, and it describes an orchestra, uh, and it goes through a series of different stages, like because somebody put up the posters around town, there was enough of an audience to keep the orchestra going. And, you know, because somebody played scales earlier in their life, they were able to sit and be a part of the violin section. Because the ushers were there to help people get to their seats, the audience could be there and participate together. And because, uh, you know, because the janitor took care of the space, uh, it was it was a place that people could come together uh, to experience music, et cetera. I'm not doing it justice. It's a, it's a really lovely, like, sort of, like, gnomic book. Uh, Maybe by Mo Willems, that sort of like, um, he's, he's got a whole empire of children's books. They're very pretty. But, uh, I, I think that way a lot about recovery and addiction recovery that there, there are a lot of important, necessary, but insufficient components to, uh, people saving their lives and then finding a first flourishing life in recovery. And, for some people that is standard medical treatment and for some people that's uh the most extreme form not extreme i think it's a totally reasonable and appropriate form of care the the most um sort of like attention getting forms of harm reduction let's say like uh safe consumption facilities or supervised injection sites where uh somebody gets like one friendly contact and they get the safety so that they can use that one time and then um, maybe that leads to something better down the line, so forth and so on. Uh, I don't know that there's any like playbook or one right answer other than everybody doing their best 
at all times across every dimension that we can find. And so if I'm hearing you right, that makes sense for me to to hear the same sort of uh, perspective being applied to sustainability. Like everybody has to do their part. And, you know, if I'm composting my food scraps, uh, that's not going to change anything today. That's not going to make an appreciable difference in pollution levels or landfill. But, you know, I'm communicating something through my action and I, I'm communicating something to my son and to my, the rest of my community and that, uh, you know, maybe I advocate for more composting opportunities and then maybe people come together to process the compost together and maybe they, they start to think to themselves, you know, what else could we do? It feels good to get our hands in the dirt. It feels good to be doing something that has at least some positive impact on the world. And th- th- there's a lot that happens there at the human level uh, that um, I don't think is quantifiable, like in policy, addiction policy too. Like we love to quantify things as if there's some sort of roadmap or uh technocratic clarity around the way forward but I, I human life is messy i think um i think it's great to have a lot of different opportunities to i forget exactly how you said it but to um to play our scales so that the the sustainability symphony can come together that makes perfect sense to me yeah, sorry that the, the pause. You're really getting me thinking about my message and my messaging, and and um, which I greatly appreciate because now I'm feeling a message of more of um. I'm now saying this is what this is the answer, and I think it's more of this answer will resonate with a lot of people, and for those who resonates, I'm going to give it to you big time. For those that doesn't resonate. Sorry, I'm working on this one, on this particular direction, and I think it's going to make a big difference, and I think it's going to help a lot of people. No, sorry, my mind is racing now. So, uh, no, maybe I mean maybe that's the right thing too. I think we need all sorts of different messages too. I mean, maybe there needs to be an ideal, but then there also needs to be uh, um, other works that reach people along different stages of the path. No, I, I don't know that they're necessarily right or wrong. It's just uh, they're, they're probably different messages that reach different people. I just, if we're thinking about craft in the writing process, I thought about that all the time writing my book. Uh, you know, should I, should I try to package it neatly and should I have some takeaways? And, you know, maybe I would help more people if I had a sort of a preface and infographics and I said, um, you know, here, here's my prescription for recovery and here's how to help yourself if you're struggling. Cause I knew people would read the book if they were struggling. And at the end of the day, that's just not the book that was writing itself. It wasn't, um, mm-hmm. it wasn't so much a choice as just what, what felt right in the moment when I sat down and I tried to put it in another sentence after the sentences I had done previously and then revised it together. And I think that's fine. You know, I think that's fine. And, you know, it was sort of a bummer when it came time for the press tour because then, the, my PR person at Penguin Press was fantastic. He was like, all right, let's try to figure out some bullet points and some takeaways here. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I'm grateful for everything they did for me because if anything, I gave them a very heavy lift. I didn't have a nice little like prescriptive nonfiction takeaway. Here's how to hack your brain, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that addiction has easy answers. I try to create a space where we could explore some of the difficult questions. Um, and again, they did a fantastic job with that. So Sam, if you're out there, I'm so grateful for you. Um, but there were moments where I was, I was thinking to myself, like, oh man, maybe, you know, maybe it would have been better. Maybe I should have just 
maybe I should have written it this way. Maybe I should have written it that way. I think in the end, the answer is to do it all, you know, like write it all, you know, write the, mm. write the ideal. And then, you know, also write the sort of motivational interviewing that meets people where they're at and carries them along. And, you know, if your heart is, if I can be so bold as to give you some feedback, Josh, it said, uh, you know, I think that one should write where their heart is, you know, and they should, they should say the message that really means something to them because that's the only thing that really changes hearts and minds is something that is already connected to your own heart. Well, I appreciate that because that, that's meaningful to me. Uh, mine's still racing. I'm, it was racing before and now I'm racing even more. <laughs> uh, but one of the things is that I'm going to keep writing things that are true to me, right to me, and then figure out, you know, and, and tinge, it's never letting go of it's for the reader. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're also giving me a lot of insight into the perspective of, I mean, I feel like I've kicked some addictions and it feels so great. I want to bring that to others. I want others to be free of, of these addictions. But a lot of people, they don't identify what I identify as addiction as addiction. They identify it as like just an unqualified good. And, you know, unasked for advice is not usually welcome. Yeah, but I also think, you know, when I was writing addiction, when I was starting to write my own addiction story in dribs and drabs, trying to get down what I remembered and think back to those moments, because they were often clouded with amphetamines and alcohol. You know, it's it's one of the hard things about writing an addiction memoir is uh, sometimes it's a, a sketchy circumstance that you're trying to recall. Uh, I got a lot of strength from people who wrote other addiction memoirs. And even before I entered recovery and became abstinent, I read a lot of addiction memoirs. And at the moment, I probably would have told you, oh, I'm just kind of curious, or these are good writers and they have a good reputation. Uh, but the truth of the matter is that they were helping me and they were probably preparing the ground for me to uh, to make a change in my life. And if I hadn't read people like uh, Carolyn Knapp, Mary Carr, other mental illness memoirists like uh, Kay Redfield Jameson or even Oliver Sacks in a way. Uh, I, I don't know that I would have had the mental model to make the changes I wanted to. And so I think there, there's something very beautiful and direct about someone saying, I did it. I was in the shit. I went through it. Here's my life now. Uh, I think that can be very inspiring and it's probably very inspiring to hear someone say, you know, I used to fly. Now I don't fly. Yeah. I think role, yeah, role models is when I first saw the video of, of um, Lauren singer showing like, this is my garbage for a year and it's in, it's, it fits comfortably in a Mason jar. And I was like that suddenly what was impossible became possible. Mm. Speaking of memoirs, have you read Stephen King's on writing? Yeah, I love it. It's a fantastic book. Do you remember what he said? There's a thing, I, I'm going to misquote it probably, but he says like he was really drunk when he wrote Cujo. He doesn't even remember writing it. And he says, too bad. It's a pretty good book. <laughs> I want to go in a different direction before we wrap mm. because there's something else that I struggle with is that uh, especially since the pandemic, I live by Washington Square Park. It's always been the case as long as I've lived here, which is since the 90s that, you know, in the evening you could walk through and someone's like, smoke, smoke, you know, selling weed. But in the pandemic, it got really hit with uh, fentanyl and crack and, and heroin and meth and, and there's syringes all over the place. Yeah. So the cops are cleaning up a bit now. Uh, and, and I'm from Philly. So Kensington, Philadelphia is, you know, 
hit with it hard. People know it's Skid Row LA. And part of me, I mean, so I go through every day to pick up litter because they make a huge mess. Actually, everyone makes a huge mess. I mean, all the stores around there sell stuff that's for takeout and they none of them have trash cans. Mm. So the trash just ends up overflowing in the trash cans in Washington Square Park, if it, even if they put it in, the, in there, but because it's like everywhere. And I'm not just talking about um, uh, drug users because people, it's what I call doof. I don't call what McDonald's sells food because it's not, I don't, I don't think heroin is poppy seed extract and I don't think uh, a McFlurry delight or whatever they call it is, is milk. Right. It's uh, like that doof. And I think like, yeah, doof is food backward. Yep. And so all that doof is like producing messes. So on the one hand, I know that like the syringes are given out by housing works and other places that are, you know, if you're going to use, here's something so you can use safely. And I support that. It makes a lot of sense. And yet, they, if left to their own devices, they're going to grow. It seems like they grow and grow and grow. The number of people there, the, the encampments, the, the tents, the amount of garbage that they strew all over the place. Uh, they get closer and closer to the playgrounds and the parents don't want to bring their kids and and the plants die. And so, you know, it's not an innocuous thing. And I don't know how to – I'm looking for other ways to how different people look at these things because – I recognize they're my neighbors. I recognize that the ones using fentanyl are my neighbors, but the ones using Dufar too. Mm. But one's legal, the other's not. And I don't want this mess all over the place. And I don't want parents to fear bringing their kids to the local park. So this view of, of there's, I want to feel compassion for them, but I also don't want them to be hurting people around them mm. who haven't asked for that. How do you think about things like that? Yeah, it's such a big and important question. I, I think what it brings to mind is that uh, one of the things about certain forms of addiction is that there are serious externalities. You know, addiction sometimes is, is compared to diabetes or to heart disease. When uh, people are trying to get congressional funding, for example, they say it's a good disease like any other. We don't even have time to get into the specific disease narrative, which, you know, you know, from my book, I have a, an issue with the way we sort of reduce that down to a buzzword. Uh, but th there's another really important way that addiction is not like any other disease, which is uh, people don't rob to fund their diabetes issue. I mean, the price of insulin, notwithstanding and corporate profiteering, uh, people don't, uh, commit, uh, assaults under the influence of doof. Uh, you know, maybe if you study at the population level, the, the glucose spike might give you a slight signal, but nothing compared to, say, alcohol and talking about uh, Washington Square Park and all the college kids getting out of the bars at 2 a.m. or 4 a.m. or whatever. Uh, so there's something about addiction there where public disorder is a real issue. And I don't think we do ourselves any favors as addiction advocates if we pretend that that's not true. I mean, first, we have to get clear-eyed about the actual problems at play. You know, there are some people who, are, you know, I would say are at the um, the more compassionate end of the advocacy spectrum. We say you just have to look to the systemic issues, and if there was more affordable housing and if there were better services available, then this wouldn't be happening. And it's like, okay, well, fine, but it's happening. It's happening. So then, what do we do? I think. 
just one, there's a lot that we could say about this, but the one really important message, the one really important lesson that we've got over and over again through the history of drug epidemics, um, because I found so many different drug epidemics, including many in New York City, including one related to opioids in the 1910s, 1920s. Um, and actually Washington Square Park was one of the major sites of crackdowns <clears throat> is, is the classic knee jerk response is crackdowns. So crack, the classic knee jerk response is get more police presence, break up the, the people, scatter them to the winds and try to conceal the outward evidence of the disorder. And the truth of the matter is that just doesn't work that people go elsewhere and that if, as, as long as we don't pay attention to all the other levels and dimensions of this complex multi-level problem, uh, prohibition by itself doesn't help. It doesn't help the individuals and it doesn't help in terms of the broader effects of drug problems. The, the societies and the times that have done a better job of responding to drug problems in this example are ones that take a multi-level approach where like maybe there is some appropriate and necessary and relatively measured and compassionate uh, law enforcement or regulatory response, but it also has to be balanced by providing for someone's human needs and all the rest. So in other words, that like prohibition by itself is doomed to fail uh, and crackdowns by themselves are doomed to fail. I think, you know, uh, cracking down on food waste or cracking down on, on littering is, you know, unless you go like totally draconian is not going to get you very far. Uh, we need a more rounded uh, perspective on what, what drives the behavior and what, what would actually make a reasonable change in the long term. Uh, I don't know if that's helpful or not, but I just think when we're presented with a, a difficult, intractable problem, the, the gut reaction is often uh, to reach for a simple answer. And usually these problems are not simple. Yeah, definitely not simple. And everyone knows that if if you crack down in the park, then they show up on 7th Avenue. And if you crack down on 7th, they'll come back to the park. And if you crack down on both, mm -hmm. then that, we end up with, with a police state. And I don't think anyone wants that either. Or else they'll be somewhere. And yeah, you know, I had, um, do you know Sam Quinones? Oh, sure. Yeah. He was on and he talked about how at the border with Mexico, they capture sometimes people carrying a million pills. or And he says that uh, this would be um, stuff that looks like um, Oxycontin, but is actually fentanyl. Mm -hmm. And he said the cost is not meaningful anymore. They don't care if they lose a bunch because they can just make more. Okay. And when they flood the market with it, then it's just everywhere. And how do you – I mean, to me – it keeps coming back to having an overload of a glut of energy that we can just make anything we want with it. Mm -hmm. And it seems like very difficult for that to happen if we, if we're not, if we don't have all the fossil fuels or nuclear or whatever to, to produce all the excess stuff. But I, of course I'm biased to see that because that's as like a big root issue. But as long as we're flooding the market, as long as someone's flooding the market, and I guess they often will, they'll, they'll get someone, they'll lend someone money and that they know can't pay back. So the person has to start dealing and then it just doesn't end. How do we approach this? I'm asking this rhetorically because I mean, it's, I mean, I'm taking the next step of, of what you were saying of like, you have to look at the bigger picture and, and, um, and think of how do we change the whole system? But 
it's not it doesn't lead to any answers yeah i we're entering a new one i mean one brief comment i want to make here is that we're entering into a new paradigm of drugs and drug use synthetic drugs are actually a relatively recent phenomenon in terms of people being able to synthesize drugs in a laboratory in a factory i mean that really only hit widespread production in certain forms in earlier in the 20th century uh when you consider the length of human psychology then that's uh an eye blink and now heading into the 21st century there's the the availability and the ease and the the just sort of yield of synthetic chemicals is so high that it completely blows our old drug control policies out of the water that um it used to be that interdiction that stopping people at the border would make at least some difference you know it wasn't it was never the answer that say for example the DEA held it out to be but it would, it would do something but now at this point um it's so easy uh that we have to find other ways of responding to people suffering into their pain. And it gets back to that quote that you read earlier on in the conversation that really it's about how do we show up for people? How do we show up for ourselves with our pain and with our suffering, all of the things that cause us to turn toward addictive patterns in the first place. And that's not, you know, a quick fix. It's not a technocratic fix. It has to be, um, you know, I wish it were simpler, but it's not, it, it has to be a long-term play and it has to be a play in which we, we, recognize all the ways in which we're interconnected and um i don't have a ready example there for sustainability in the environment um but i you know i can imagine that there are analogies or for synthetic drugs i mean mm. that seems like a similar thing i mean as a scientist i have to say it's not i mean you know mathematical proof you have to say if a solution exists then what would it be right you can't just say it exists it may not there may not be a solution it may just keep growing i mean in your case you describe a better life having exited the addiction if i if that's the right way to put it sure and but lots of people don't go that way um uh, but i guess we can't stop doing our best learning from what we can to try to create new systems that can handle these things I, I appreciate that framing. I'll have to process it a bunch of the scale is different. Everything. I mean, we're, we're in new territory and we're constantly entering yet more new territory. Some things will work and some things won't, but there may be new things we haven't come up with. And that's our, cha that's one of our challenges. Well, I have to say, this is one of the most thought provoking while doing it. I, well, all my guests are thought provoking, <laughs> but uh, I really appreciate what you've shared I'm sure everyone says that who's, who's read your book. It's impossible to read the book without being affected and and, and meaningfully, powerfully. Uh, I'm sure. Does does everyone say that? It's, it feels like I have to. Oh, who knows? I'm sure there are people who are bored and put it down after 10 pages. But I appreciate your kind words. It really means a lot. So thanks for your careful reading of it. And uh, for the conversation, it's been thought-provoking for me too. I think all the time about ecological crisis and um, the environment and to to try to tease apart these connections is is uh is interesting it's it's it feels like only the first step well let's keep in touch yeah great i loved it well carl thank you very much all right thanks josh how many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment but i call the future step by step this podcast is creating a culture of joy 
community and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.